I want to welcome you again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We're really glad that you're here this morning. Um, especially if you're a guest with us, we're honored that you would spend uh, choose to spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us. That, uh, that means a lot to us. Uh, we're continuing on walking through our sermon series on the Sermon of the Mount that we've been doing this summer. And uh, today we come to a teaching that Jesus has on, or a part of the sermon, it's all one sermon, um, but a part of this sermon where Jesus addresses marriage and divorce, okay? Marriage and divorce. Um, now, some topics are difficult in the scriptures because they're hard to understand. You have to take them apart, get your mind around it. And then some uh, topics in scripture are, are difficult because they're weighty. There are emotions attached to them. There's a heaviness attached to them. And lucky for us today, marriage and divorce has both of those, right? Both of those things are represented in just these two verses. This is the shortest section of the sermon that of, of, of Jesus teaches. There's just two verses, but there is a lot in here. Um, we have a lot to do this morning. Um, and one of the challenges of teaching on these two topics is not immediately running to all the what-if scenarios that revolve around marriage and divorce and, and remarriage. And so today, my goal is to faithfully teach and communicate what Jesus taught in this passage. So if I don't answer a question you have today, I apologize, but I want to answer that question. I want to process that, that, this, this stuff with you because this is important stuff. So feel free afterwards to come and talk to me. I'll be down front afterwards. Uh, you can set up a time to meet with me. I would love to do that with you, but I can't chase too many uh, trails today because I really want to stick to why Jesus uh, thought it was important enough to bring these topics up in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so let's read these two verses today, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump in. Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we um, want to all humbly come to this text today. And like I said, when we're teaching on a topic in the scriptures like um, the ones we talk about today, we need to approach this with humility and understanding and some gentleness and really asking the, the, the hard questions, what, um, what did you intend to teach in this passage? And so I pray today that we, could, um, we can submit our minds to the scriptures, we can submit our hearts to the scriptures, and as a result of doing those two things, I pray that we would be changed um, as we leave this place today. It's for uh, your glory and our good, in your son's name we pray, amen. So, like we've done the past uh, several weeks, as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus follows the same pattern, the same rhythm as he's teaching this. He's going to take something that was taught in the law, and he doesn't overturn it. He doesn't even reinterpret it. He's actually trying to correct the interpretation that was happening at that present time on this particular teaching. So he's correcting. He's reminding. He's making sure that they understand what the, the heart of the teaching actually was in the Old Testament. Okay? So we go, before we go any further today in this particular passage of Matthew, we want to go back to the place in the Old Testament that Jesus actually is referring to in this particular 
uh, verse, okay? So let me read verse 31 again in chapter 5, and then we'll move to the Old Testament um, passage here that Jesus is referencing. So verse 31, it was also said, okay? It was also said. Now, this is a little different than some of the other teachings we've had before. It, it, Jesus has just said, it has been said. But so that has also been said means, I think, that Jesus is connecting today's passage, today's teaching, to last week's. And Sam taught on um, sexual purity, sexual lust, um, lust in general, but uh, more specifically, uh, sexual lust. And Jesus is obviously making a connection between today's passage um, and last week's passage. I think that's important to remember. It it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay, now let's move over into Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. This is the passage it's coming out of. Now Moses, hearing from God, is writing this down in what the Jewish people refer to as the Torah. And for us, that's just the first five books of the Old Testament. Let's read Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay, so to cut through all this, it can seem at first reading that God has a flippant view towards marriage and divorce. Okay, first reading. He doesn't. He doesn't. Here's what's happening here. God is not diminishing his view of marriage in verse 1 here. This is a concession to hum- human sinfulness occurring at this time. Okay, Moses and, and God through Moses is not trying to create this big teaching on divorce and remarriage. It's a concession. He's basically saying he's dro- God's dropping this wisdom in here in the Torah. And what he's saying is here, in the aftermath of divorce, all this divorce is happening. It's already happening. So God is trying to navigate and help the people navigate what is happening in the aftermath of these divorce. And more, and more specifically, the damage that it's happening, happening to women in this ancient Middle Eastern culture as a result of their view of divorce. Okay, so when it says, so if you found something indecent, that's what Moses says here, which again is not a reason for divorce, but what he's really saying to the people, he's like, hey, since you're really sinful knuckleheads and you can't get this marriage thing right because you're sinful, let me help you handle it. Let me help you minimize the damage that all of this is causing. And then Moses proceeds to go into this kind of step-by-step process for how to handle that if this happens. Now, remember this phrase, some indecency. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that here in a second. So this, in Deuteronomy, was written about 609-ish B.C. Okay, so if you fast forward over 600 years later to when Jesus is writing, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, let's read Matthew 5, 31 and 32 again. It was also said, so he's referring to that passage in Deuteronomy. Whoever divorces his wife, let let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Okay. Once again, Jesus is not giving a full teaching and a full theological treatise on marriage and divorce. That's not what he's doing. Jesus is responding to a raging debate that was happening in his time over this particular passage, Deuteronomy 24. Okay. And so this correct, this, this popular teaching was happening as far as divorce goes. And Jesus is trying to correct the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. He wants to take people who are listening to him and us as well, as we are reading the Bible, back to God's original design and heart behind marriage. And we should listen because we also live in a culture that makes divorce fairly easy. Okay, now historians say in the time that Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the divorce was much worse, much more rampant than it was when uh, Deuteronomy 24 was written. And really the reason why most historians point to is the lax um, rabbinical teaching on this particular passage. What rabbis and teachers would do, they would take these wisdom things from the Old Testament and write commentary and teach. And the, the people, the Jewish people, were dependent upon the rabbis and how they figured out how to live according to the law. And there was one of the most popular rabbis at the time was a guy named Hillel. And Hillel interpreted the phrase, some indecency, okay, remember that some indecency phrase, as anything the husband didn't like. Okay, so right there, you start to see some problems. And the popular rabbi started to, to, uh, to, to, uh, interpret it this way. And so all of the people kind of followed his lead. Okay. Um, now other rabbis picked up on this because this guy had a lot of influence. Now here are the things some other rabbis, including Hillel, wrote down as grounds for divorce to kind of explain this sum and decency. I want you just to get a picture of this. Okay. And a lot of these specific things come from um, a guy by a, a scholar by the name of Charles Quarles, who's a commentator and scholar on the book of Matthew. Listen to this. So a husband could could divorce his wife for these reasons. And these are just a few of them. If she was barren, if she had poor posture, if she became a deaf mute, if her husband thought she was lazy, if she was ambidextrous, seems neutral thing to me, maybe good, um, if her head was oddly shaped, or really any physical characteristic the man didn't like about her, if he found someone more attractive or she burnt his toast. I'm not making this up. It's, that's a quote from a rabbi. If she burnt his toast, okay? So the culture takes this teaching from the rabbis, these powerful rabbis, and runs with it, or the teaching that the rabbis interpreted from Moses, and run with, ran with it to a place it never was meant to go. So any man could divorce his wife for finding anything wrong. So Jesus is trying to correct this teaching primarily for the sake of women. Women were being damaged by this. Women were being hurt by this. Because in this time period, single women, especially divorced women, could not sustain themselves. They couldn't self-support. Um, she would have to remarry just to function and stay alive. And women were viewed by the culture as second-class citizens. And they were to be fully dependent upon men to be supported. And this is probably what you're seeing when Jesus runs into the women at the woman at the well. Jesus says, you've had five husbands and the one with you, who you're with now, he is not your husband. And we tend to, at first glance, kind of look down upon her and think that she's just kind of a promiscuous sinner. But what she's actually trying to do is survive. She's probably been divorced. These things haven't worked out. So she just hops on with the next man in order to survive. And the men could get married in this culture without any, without any problems. 
Um, even if the divorce wasn't legitimate. So what this whole certificate thing was that Moses was writing about is when a divorce was legitimate, the, the, the woman needed to be handed a certificate. So when she went to be remarried, which she more than likely would do because of the culture, then she could show that certificate of divorce and it was a legit divorce and there could be a legit remarriage. But when this is the reasoning for divorce, this list of things, this has just gotten messy and gotten, gotten off the rails. And so Jesus is going back to try to correct it for the sake of mostly women. And then you have kids involved because some of these women had kids and they were bringing kids into the situation as well. And so Jesus is really coming after the men here in this culture. Okay, the rabbis and their teaching were empowering these men to be able to send their wife away because they burnt their dinner, which is just crazy. Being able, and then basically forcing them to remarry and commit adultery because they were committing adultery because it wasn't a legit reason to get divorced in the first place. And the, the men and the men in power set up this kind of power structure and women had no, no way out of it. So Jesus, we just need to be clear, Jesus is not playing around here. This is two verses. This is the shortest uh, kind of sub point in all the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, basically he's saying, you need to cut this stuff out. This is horrible. You need to shut it down. Stop doing this. This is basically what Jesus is trying to communicate here. And imagine if you're a female sitting in the audience listening to Jesus. You finally have this guy who's obviously got some influence. He has some power. He's actually smart. He's called a rabbi. And he's actually taking your side in this. He's actually coming after the men. He's critiquing the men. He seems to be treating you as fellow image bearers of God created different but equal with men. This is, this is a very progressive teaching that Jesus had for this time period. And we need to see that. And that's, that's really, I think, what provokes Jesus to put this in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's obvious their view of marriage was skewed. I mean, it, it, was, it was messed up and destructive. But we have our own issues in our culture, don't we? We have our own issues in our cultural marriage. Maybe different, but we have our own issues. And Jesus has a different view for marriage than, than our culture, that culture for sure, and our culture. Jesus is going to say, we're going to look at it in a second, but, but that the marriage is, a, is not, a rela- it's not a relational contract. It's not a social contract where two people kind of make this logical decision to come together because it will imbe- make their life better. Like one, one partner says, you know, I'll, I'll come together and say, you know, I'll come. And I think this is going to make me uh, more successful. I think this just this fits how I'm heading in my direction of my life. The other person says this as well. And they just kind of come together because that's what, that's what we do in our culture. We make these contracts called marriage. That's not what marriage is. It is a covenant that God creates where two individuals, two distinct individuals come together to, and choose to lay their lives down for one another. This is the biblical view of marriage. Now, this may seem, sound strange here if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Uh, maybe this church thing is new for you. But you have to realize that our culture is selling us something when it comes to marriage and relationships. As human beings, our culture is, is told that this is the way to human flourishing. There's a certain view of human flourishing, and especially as it relates to our sexuality. We're being told a story. We are just animals, and sex is just this biological release, and it's no big deal, and it's fun, and, and there's, no, there's no strings attached to it. 
And, and marriage is just this social construct that was created in a time past and we don't really need it anymore. It's not that big of a deal. We can kind of take it or leave it or redefine it or do whatever we want to do with marriage. And when it comes to the t- church's teaching, the culture just thinks we're uh, repressive and that we need to break the shackles of this um, church tradition, even though this tradition's been around for thousands of years and it's led to a lot of flourishing. The goal in our culture is to be happy in the moment, to live it up, not worry about consequences, don't worry too much about the future, especially as it relates to relationships and sexuality. It's just live in the moment. Do what feels good. You're an individual. Live how you want to live. Don't let anyone hold you down. This is especially true and, and I think damaging as it relates to marriage and sexuality. It does change how we view marriage. My question is, does the story that the culture is telling us, does it lead to human flourishing? Does it lead to this freedom and joy that can't be taken away? Does it really lead to human flourishing, this view of marriage? The culture says that sex and marriage is not a big deal, doesn't add a lot to our purpose or meaning. It's very casual But it's obviously a huge deal because so much of our identity as men and women in this culture is tied to our sexuality. Sam talked a little bit about this last week um, and how how we tend to wrap our identity around and, and and that gets mixed in with our sexuality. And that's not the way God intended it to be. And when that happens, we see the effects of it all over our culture, especially the ones that are damaging. Is there a better story? Jesus is saying, yes, there is. And it's the biblical story of marriage. God creating two individual people, man and woman, two individuals differently created who were both created in the, in, uh, in the image of God, but created different. And, and in our case, they're, they're sinful and we're, we don't have everything figured out and we get put together and we come together and become one flesh. We become something new, something different, something that didn't exist before as we were living as two individuals. And this marriage isn't based on a human agreement or a simple contract or a piece of paper, but it is bound by a covenant that God created and can only be separated by death. This is the covenant of marriage. This is God's story in our, for our marriage, in biblical marriage. And this covenant is to be marked by mutual sacrifice and submission to one another, Paul in Ephesians says that marriage represents the world, that the, the marriage represents to the world the relationship between Christ and the church. And in this particular metaphor, he's saying uh, that Christ is, the, the, the males are to represent Christ, the husbands are. We're to lay down our lives for our wives. We put our preferences aside. We lay down our preferences. We die to ourselves daily as Jesus did for the sake of our wives. And he says, wives, you represent the church. You respond to your husband, your husband's love by following his leadership. And this is what that passage communicates to the women. And it's in this context, in this context of relationship, where Jesus is made known to the world, that the world can actually see the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. And where two people can come together and who can grow in their faith and grow what it means to to love sacrificially and grow in their love for Jesus. This is the purpose. This is why marriage was created by God. The world asks questions like, what can I get out of marriage? Or how does this marriage benefit me? 
And the Bible or God wants us to ask questions like, what can I give to this marriage? What can, can I contribute to this marriage? What do I bring to this marriage? How do I lay my life down for my husband or wife in this marriage? How can God be honored in my marriage? These are the kinds of questions that the Bible wants us to ask. This is the covenant of marriage. This is biblical marriage. Now, let's go back to Matthew 5.31. So in this teaching, Jesus does have this phrase that we need to tackle, right? This tackle of except for sexual immorality, right? I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Okay, except on the ground of, of sexual immorality, okay? Uh, this has a, a lot to do with divorce and remarriage, okay? We're not going to go too far on this because we don't have time, but I want to talk a little bit about it. And the two questions this raises, I think, are one, is it ever okay to get divorced? And if so, what for? And two, is it ever okay to get remarried? And if so, when? Okay. And I'm not going to get into every situation here. Like I said before, there's a lot of different scenarios we can go into and all, none of them are, are exactly the same. And I, I'd love to talk to you more about it. But so let's talk about this. So to kind of put my cards on the table, what I, I, my view on this is I think that if I look at the entirety of the biblical teaching on marriage, especially as it relates to marriage and divorce, but I think the evidence points to the fact that divorce should not be an option. Now, I'm going to caveat that in a second, okay? So hang with me. But I'm going to lean, lean into this and say what I've seen in the scripture, I don't think divorce should be an option. Let's read some, let's read some verses to kind of uh, give some, some foundation to this. Genesis 2. This is a passage Jesus will quote in Matthew 19, okay? Matthew 19 has a similar teaching to the one we looked at today. And in Matthew 19, he quotes Genesis 2. And this is 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus uh, further teaches on this in, in Matthew 19 and says, What God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay? Very straightforward. Let what God has joined together, let no man separate. In the book of Hosea, God tells the prophet Hosea, hey, I want you to go marry this prostitute named Gomer. Okay? Hosea says, okay. He does what God says. He's a prophet. Okay? Hosea goes and marries Gomer, a prostitute. M marries her, enters into a covenant of marriage. Gomer continues to prostitute herself out and basically commit adultery a lot of times um, in that marriage. And God tells Hosea, don't divorce her. Remain in the marriage. Because this is a picture, I want the world to see a picture of what my love looks like, my never-ending love that never gives up for my people. And that was the point of having Hosea do that. Um, this teaching from Matthew in chapter 5 and chapter 19, um, the, the one in chapter 5 specifically occurs in two other Gospels, Matthew 10 and Luke 16. And in both of these, they're called parallel teachings or parallel passages. In both of these, they're almost exactly the same but Jesus doesn't include this exception clause, theologians like to call it, that, that clause, except for the case of sexual immorality. Okay? They don't include it. Okay? So my question would be, um, why didn't, on a, on a subject as big as marriage and divorce, why wouldn't have Mark and Luke included that, that clause if um, divorce was permissible in some situation? They didn't include it. So my question is, well, why, they, why didn't they include it? And lastly, the last kind of evidence for maybe this view is um, 
In the passage we're looking at today, adultery in the English in English is, is mentioned twice, right? And that word, uh, like Sam talked a little bit about last week, moikio, um, is 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 translated there twice, okay? And then this this word for sexual immorality, which is pornea, um, is is used and it's translated sexual immorality, okay? So if Jesus meant that for sexual immorality to mean adultery, why didn't Jesus just use the word for adultery? So you would have had adultery mentioned three times there. But he, Jesus somehow uses sexual immorality, porneia, and then he uses after that the two words for, um, the two words for, can you put that verse back on the screen? Yeah, uh, 31 and 32. Um, yeah, so you see sexual, on the ground of sexual immorality, and then the two lines after that makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, okay? So he uses adultery twice. Why doesn't he use that um, when he used sexual immorality if it meant commit adultery, okay? And so um, these are some of just the reasons why I think you should lean towards saying divorce is never an option. Now, here's, here's kind of the issue as, as people have talked about this and, and, and theologians have studied this. It doesn't help answer the question, then why did Jesus say this little phrase in Matthew? You can't just wipe it out. You can't mean, oh, Jesus didn't mean to say it. If we're going to be faithful to the scriptures, we have to wrestle here, okay? So, I think there's some biblical um, teaching here. You could say that maybe there is an exception for um, sexual immorality. Now, what does that mean? You have to, we have to talk more about that. We don't have time. But it seems like there might be a case where Jesus is saying that it's okay for divorce to occur in the event of adultery. Now, I think that evidence is thin, but I think you can make a biblical case for that, okay? That's not the way I lean, but I think you can make a case for it. So I want to kind of give both sides there. Now, so if you go with that, kind of that view, that there are some things that divorce is allowed for, okay? One would be adultery. Two would be a teaching that comes from 1 Corinthians 7. We're not going to get into that for the sake of time, but Paul is basically saying here to Christians, if you marry a non-Christian, and that non-Christian abandons the relationship, deserts you, then you have the freedom to get divorced. He's not commanding them to be to the divorced. He's just saying you have the, you have the ability to get divorced. You're, you have an out there if you're abandoned by an unbeliever. Okay? So you have adultery, you have abandonment, and then the third thing I would say, or the third kind of permissible thing to potentially get divorced in is abuse. Okay? Now, Abuse, unfortunately, there's not a place in the scriptures that attaches kind of abuse in, in, in the marriage context. I wish there was. But in the case of abuse, if, if pastorally, if we're handling this, I think this is the time where you use kind of the idea of separating. And not necessarily divorcing, but separating immediately for a length of time to work some stuff out. The offending party can get help, needs to get help, needs to repent, needs to change some things. And there needs to be evidence from a community that surrounds this couple that this person is changing. And we're taking this very, very seriously. But I don't think you rush into divorce necessarily in that case. Now, if the offending party um, doesn't get help, nothing changes, and the victim still is in danger, then I think uh, divorce is permissible. Now, how am I getting that from scripture? I'm making a little bit of a jump, which most theologians have to here that 1 Corinthians 7, that abandonment thing, that's what has just happened. You've abandoned the relationship. You've abandoned the marriage because you've chosen to be abusive um, and you're not acting like a believer. I would say if somebody's walking through this and they're continuing abusing their spouse, 
I don't have too much of a problem to say, I don't think you're saved, which would give the, the victim the, per, the permission to get a divorce there, okay? So uh, adultery, um, um, abandonment, and abuse, I think, are the three things that may be permissible for divorce in the Scripture. Now, I don't think it's that simple. So let me give you kind of a, a sum here to give you some, some barriers, some, some guardrails here. So I think there's a spectrum of biblical orthodoxy when it comes to this teaching, okay? So the, the leadership here leans more to the, to the position of divorce should never be an option. Now, there's a caveat there, and I gave you the caveat for abuse because that's a serious, serious situation. But I think I'm appealing to 1 Corinthians 7 in that situation. So on one side, divorce, um, marriage can only end if one party dies, okay, in death. Okay, and I think that's obviously uh, the, the, the marriage is over if that were to happen. Um, now, at the other end of this expe- acceptable spectrum, you have these three A's that I just mentioned, adultery, abuse, or abandonment. And I think that's, that's as far as you can go and say those are the only three things that I think you could even make a case for in the scriptures that warrant um, divorce, okay? And the, th- the thing here, I call it a spectrum because if you go off either side of that, I think you go into some dangerous territory and I don't think you have any, very little, if any, biblical warrant for those positions. Now, there are, there are theologians that I love that I read side by side that disagree in this spectrum, okay? There are some fall on one end, some fall on the other end, and there's a lot in between, okay? Um, there's one church um, that we learn a lot from and uh, both, they're, they're, they're led by a group of elders and two elders who are both accomplished writers and theologians. They disagree on the issue and they're on the same elder board. Okay, so this is, a, this is an issue within those bounds you can agree to disagree on. But I wanted to at least give you a kind of our position on it. Now, kind of coming back out a little bit, what this means is that um, you, there, there is no biblical grounds for divorce for things like finding someone better, falling out of love incompatibility, oh, I made a mistake, um, or anything else that's not one of those three things that we mentioned. And this is that marriage is a big deal. The marriage covenant is a huge deal because it's to represent God's never-ending love for his people. So that's why he, he, he loves marriage, and that's his covenant, and he wants, if all things possible, to stay together. And Genesis 1 and 2, before Genesis 3 happened, everyone would have stayed together because sin wasn't in the world yet. Sin comes into the world in Genesis 3, and it has messed all of this up. It causes Moses to write, have to write Deuteronomy 24 and Jesus to have to answer these kind of divorce questions in Matthew 5. This is why we're having to talk about divorce is because of sin. So this is not, this is not the way God intended it to be. You have this, even this part in, in Matthew 19 after Jesus teaches in the other part of Matthew. And after Jesus teaches here, the, the disciples around him say, wow. Maybe it's better for us not to marry. That's actually their response in the scriptures. And so I think the seriousness and the weightiness of what Jesus just taught, the disciples are feeling it, right? They're right there with Jesus. They're saying, wow, we need to think about this marriage thing. We, need, we really should think about it because this is a huge deal. And I think that's the correct response. Now, to kind of move us towards closing here and landing the plane, I want to talk to a few groups of people because I know, I think we all are filtering this through our stage of life and through some of our story. And so first, I want to talk to singles as it relates to the single folks. Um, first off, our culture puts way too much pressure on you to be married, period. Just know that the scripture does not put that pressure on you. It does not. It doesn't. 
Um, Paul calls singleness a gift in 1 Corinthians 7 in that same passage. Paul himself was single. Jesus was single. You're in good company if you are single. Marriage doesn't complete you, and it will not necessarily make you happier. Okay, so my, my, my counsel, my encouragement to you is not to miss this time in your life when you're single. Okay? There are things that God can do in your life and can use you for when you're not married. When you get married, there are constrictions put on your life. It's okay, but that's just the way it is. As a single person, there are things you can do that you can't do when you are married. So don't miss the season in your life right now that God has you in if you are single. And there's no rush to get married, and there's no pressure from the Bible or should come from the church to get married. Now, there's a few situations where God says, yeah, you should get married. Um, It's in the context of like just burning up sexually if two people are in a relationship. It's like, y'all just get married so y'all don't mess things up here. Now, but those are isolated situations. So that um, that is for singles. Now, if you are... um, if you're single, and, and I would encourage you to start thinking about marriage. Hopefully you didn't tune me out today because you're, just because you're single. But start thinking about marriage today. Right? Think about what is your theology of marriage? What is your biblical view of marriage? Know these things before you meet someone that you may like to marry. Because, again, moving into this is a really, really big deal. You need to know well who you are going to marry. And we'll be, be Pastor Dad up here for a second. Um, that that don't play around with who you're going to marry, okay? They better love Jesus, not just go to church, not just have some remnant of faith, not just be a good person. They need to love Jesus, and they need to have a biblical view of marriage because all of the mess of marriage that happens, the foundation has to be a biblical view of marriage or that thing is going to be shaky for a long time. Be careful who you marry and develop a theology and understanding of marriage as young as you can, even if you're far away from being married, it's not too early to start. Now, for married, if the presupposition, and this is where my, my lean on this issue comes in, if the presupposition is forever, then the questions in your marriage become, how are we going to get through this? How are we going to fix this? How are we going to make it? Because I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. Well, we better fix it. And how are we going to do it? How are we going to work on it? What are we going to do to fix it? There's no like out here. It's just how are we going to fix it? Because it is, hey, until the Lord, one of us, he takes one of us home. We're both here and we're sticking. Now, let's switch that to if. If there's these few little things that you can kind of get out of marriage on, it's like, hmm, if is a conditional thing, right? So if he starts doing this or if she stops doing this, then we can remain married or if this, or if that. And it becomes very conditional on people's behavior. And when you put two sinners together and say, hey, try to have a good marriage, it is hard. And you will make each other mad. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to sin big time and hurt one another in marriage. And if it's if, there's always going to be that little crack in the door that you can kind of kick open and potentially um, end the marriage. So if you go in thinking, hey, um, on, on this side of the marriage, if you go in thinking nothing, Nothing could do it. Now, I've already caveated that a little bit, so you can keep that in mind as I say that. For men, lead, love, pursue, lay down your life for your wife. Okay, Women, respect your husband. Be his biggest fan. Be willing to follow his leadership. Encourage him. Um, Both of you work hard on your marriages. If you're struggling or need help, there are a lot of things like little wisdom tips I could give you, but the biggest thing is just go find help. 
get in a missional community, find biblical community, and ask somebody from help. Find somebody else who's married. Hey, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to understand. This is the first time we face this. I don't know how, what to do. I don't know how to respond when she or he does this. Help me do that. In fight clubs, get together, talk about this. This should be a conversation that comes up often in fight clubs for those of you who are married because marriage is hard and it's important. Um, it's more important than your job, your hobby, your schooling. It's more important than, listen, your kids. It's more important than your kids. And, I, and that's hard. I have, a, I have a three-year-old and I love that little kid. I love him. But my wife is more important than him. Your, your kids need to see a husband and wife who are dating, who are serving one another, who are repenting toward each other, who are apologizing to each other. That's the best context for a kid to grow up in is when a husband and wife are doing that and loving each other first. Kids are meant to come second in the family structure. Now, this is, some, this is showing the world who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. This is not about us. The great thing is, is if we make marriage primarily about God and not about us, and we lay down our lives for our spouse, then as a byproduct of that, we have this beautiful and joy-filled marriage more times than not that we want if we put the other person first and we remember what the purpose of marriage is. Now, um, I want to talk to briefly for those who are struggling. Marriage is hard. It doesn't feel good right now. You're in the middle of a mess. Um, get help. Talk to somebody today. Don't wait. Don't kick it under a rug. Don't think, hey, it'll get better with time. That's not the way it usually works. You need to get help. I'm available. You have other people in this church available, your missional community leader, the other elders of this church. We will sit down and help you guys and talk with you and work through it. And I will say one thing here as husband and wife. Most oftentimes, in my experience, one person thinks things are better than the other one. So maybe a little exercise you can do today or tomorrow, whenever, is ask, hey, one to 10, where do you think we're at in our marriage? And if we're both, you know, five to, to seven, that's, that's probably pretty good. You know, hopefully you want, you want to be more. But, but if here's the danger. If both of you say three, you probably already know that. And you probably, hopefully, are getting help. Now, if one of you says three and one of you says eight, there, there's a problem there, right? One person's bitter and angry and quiet and keeps sleep, sweeping it under the rug. And the other person is, is just kind of like thinking everything's good. And that's a recipe for a bomb to blow up eventually because that can't sustain itself. So communicate, talk about, hey, how are we doing? How's this going? Do we need to get help? Oh, you're a three. What's wrong? Tell me more about that. I didn't know you were feeling that way. And then conversations can start that way. Um, those of you who are um, kind of in the, in the, in the category of, of having divorce um, at some part of your life. Um, I know this conversation has been difficult. And I am sorry uh, for um, the pain and the baggage and everything that comes along with divorce. Whatever the reason, whatever the scenario, it's not right. It's not the way it's intended to be. Whether you're the victim or not, it's just not right. And, and I'm sorry about that. Um, and so I, I pray that you would, you would deal with the baggage and deal with the wounds. Like sweep, sweeping it under the rug is not going to help. It's just going to lead to anger and bitterness if you ignore that. From every divorce, I think in my experience, there are wounds. There's a lot of divorce in my family. There are wounds, there's baggage, and deal with it. There's a provision for this. It's called the gospel. That Jesus wants you to deal with that stuff with him so he can take the shame away. You take the guilt away. You take the bitterness and the anger away that you have, potentially have for other people. Now, 
if you have heard this and you know that maybe you had a divorce and it was not on biblical grounds, um, there may be a hard conversation that you need to have. Maybe you need to go find somebody from your past and say you're sorry and admit that this wasn't potentially the biblical way to do this. Now, most theologians, if not all, would agree that you shouldn't end a marriage that you're in a second marriage. You shouldn't do that. That's not what I'm saying. But there's probably some baggage maybe from your first marriage that you need to deal with that would give you freedom and joy if you had those hard conversations. God, if, 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 you were, if, you had, if it was your sin involved in that, God can redeem your sin. Okay? He can do that. Um, and if you're, if you're, if you're um, divorced and your, your ex-husband or wife has not been remarried, I would pray and I would encourage you to at least consider remarrying with your original um, spouse if they are not remarried yet. Now, I want to close with this, the gospel. I said the gospel is the provision, and I mean this. I have cheated on Jesus a thousand times in a thousand different ways, as have all of you in this room. We've all cheated on Jesus. Maybe we, we, maybe marriage isn't our issue, but we have our issue. All of this does. And Jesus never, ever, ever leaves us. He's never left. If you're in Christ and you have faith in Christ, he has never left you and he will never leave you. Okay, and this is what marriage is about. So if you're here today and you've messed up, trust in Jesus, run to Jesus. You may be asking the question, is God anger with me? Has God removed his blessing from me? No. If you're in Christ, you are loved. Through his, his grace and his mercy and his death and his resurrection, you have been forgiven. There is no sin, including divorce, that God can't cover in his work. And I want you to believe that because I know this kind of message and this kind of, this kind of scripture can produce a lot of shame. So we're going to take communion here in a minute. And I want you, when if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to come forward or head to the back, and I want you to take communion with confidence, knowing that Jesus has covered all of your sin, all of it, including divorce. So if you still have shame and baggage from that, let it go. Let it go and trust that Jesus was shamed so you don't have to be shamed. Jesus was made nothing so that you could be something. Jesus was, was, was punished so you wouldn't have to face everlasting punishment and you can actually do things better the next time. If you're on your second marriage, you can do it right this time because Jesus gives, it, gives you a new life and he can make all things new, all thanks to Jesus and the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, these passages, even though they're hard, even though they're difficult. Um, I thank you for... Um, not leaving us in the dark on something that um, has affected all of us, marriage or divorce. I thank you for um, just your word. And I thank you that, that I don't have to stand up here and, and, and make something up on such a difficult and heavy topic. Um, and I pray that as we, as we leave here, that we can remember that um, your covenant you've made with, with us, those of us who have faith in you. You've saved us. You've redeemed us. You've welcomed us into your family. You love us. You're, your, you're, you're, our, you're um, our father. And there's nothing that can separate us from your love. Nothing. Not even death can separate us from your love. So for sure, divorce can't if we're in Christ. Amen.